0: Let's, re- let's regroup here. Um, we'll go for about an hour or so, so I'll go to about 4.03, 4.05. If you would like to leave a donation, I will get to it at the end. Um, again, you are certainly under no requirement to do that. I usually put up a thread 24 hours in advance or more, people fill it up, and then I go to that for an hour, and then if you put a donation in, um, I'll take a look at your question in particular. Again, certainly under zero obligation to do so, but if you do, it's greatly appreciated. All right, let's try this now. Let's get things started, shall we? And we're back there we go all right just one more time making sure everything's all right now they say it's too quiet <laughs> okay hold on let me put up just a little bit how about that a little bit better let's see a little bit higher check 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 yeah it's a little bit better a little bit better if it's too low i don't know what to tell you it's just fucking low all right um i'll let othello text me Bro, it's never simple. It's never easy. It's just never. It never does what it's supposed to. But here we are. The the uh, picture should be clearer today. All right. Let's get going, shall we? Uh, first question. Luke, I made the short-sighted and regrettable decision to tell a coworker I like combat sports, specifically MMA. At a company luncheon, he proceeded to share with me his unimpressive black belt credentials and some kind of bullshit karate I'd never heard of. Yeah, that sounds right. As well as his weaponry training. Aha. Note, this guy is my age but looks at least 10 years older and 50 pounds heavier. He then tells me how he can't take MMA seriously because, quote, the average fight in real life only lasts 30 seconds. That's true. And, quote, they don't use the most dangerous techniques. That's somewhat true. Somewhat true. When I mentioned that it's a shame that karate isn't used more in MMA, he became flustered and defensive. So I just 180'd out of this topic altogether and started talking about something less controversial like politics. Should I never do this again? Share my love of combat sports with random people? Yeah, I never talk about combat sports. Almost with anybody. Almost with anybody these days. Um, Because my friends don't watch it, for the most part. They might watch, like, a really big fight or something. But that's about it. And... I mostly, when I'm done with work, don't want to talk about it with random people. I don't want it to be my entire identity when I'm outside, although it ends up kind of being that these days. But um, The guy you're describing is less in existence than he used to be. So back in the mid, well actually here's what ended up happening. When when UFC first came around in 93, 94, 95, all that kind of stuff. and, and you started getting better fights, better athletes, people were really beginning to figure things out in the late 90s and whatnot. The folks in the traditional martial arts communities felt very threatened. And it, in fact, over time, until the early 2000s, and now, like when I was a kid, karate schools were on every strip mall, every block. Every kid wanted to train karate, some taekwondo or whatever. And of course, you had the, the you know the occasional folks doing you know judo or something else. But that was it. Like karate was sort of seen as like the preeminent martial art to train, preeminent fighting style, blah blah blah, with with a few exceptions here or there. And what jiu-jitsu ended up doing was basically taking the place of that, right? Jiu-jitsu is now in almost every street, almost every... And I've got someone exaggerating it, but, you know, it's not hard to find a school to train jiu-jitsu at. Like, 20 years ago, if you traveled internationally, in fact, it would be very difficult. Now, like, it almost doesn't matter where you go, again, with some exception, there's going to be some kind of jiu-jitsu training available to you. And then to that end point, MMA became the... Um, Not just a rival to boxing as like this sort of preeminent fighting style, but this incredibly popular attractive force that all of it had this way of supplanting the old martial arts order that had existed for a long time. And in many ways that was good, right? I mean, Joe Rogan had a famous quote once from fight years ago. I think it was like a Sean Shirk fight or something. But he had said that, like, martial arts had advanced more in the last 20 years than it did in the previous, like, 2000. That's something of an exaggeration, but there is some real truth to it, because the real insight was when karate was around, like, in the 80s as this preeminent fighting thing, and again, here in D.C., it actually was Taekwondo with Jun Ri. Jun Ree was a close associate for a time of Bruce Lee, but the, the point was, was that the styles for the most part didn't mix like if you got into karate you just stayed into karate if you got into taekwondo you just stayed in taekwondo there would be exceptions here or there like there always is in the human experience but it was very much siloed and segregated by design by the people who were the architects and the keepers of these sports and then mma came around and just not only jumbled the order of what was the preeminent fighting style with at first jujitsu being the, the the peak one but over time you know the real mixing of things began to shake things up um, that guy you're describing existed a lot back then when that order was getting replaced. And they would say things like, well, they don't use weapons, which is true. That does change the equation. And he is right about most fights ending in 30 seconds. That's also true. But the other part about it is the reason why these fights go longer is, yes, you can't eye gouge or use a broken glass bottle. All right, that's one reason why it might extend. But the other reason it might extend is these guys are vastly superior at fighting. They are vastly, at the highest level anyway, superior athletes. They are extensively well-trained. They have, again, the better ones will have extensively more defense. They'll have exposure to alternate styles or whatever that even means anymore. Right? Before it was just a lot of, you know, jujitsu won because no one knew jujitsu and then once everyone began to use it, its value began to somewhat diminish although it still is pretty prevalent. The point I'm trying to make here is this guy is like a throwback to 1998. That's who that guy is. But the reality is, I remember when I was working at Sirius XM and they first started wanting me to do post-fight shows for them. One of the engineers there, I don't remember his name. He was some fucking nerdy goofball. You know, I mean, the guy, if he could bench press 135, I'd be surprised, candidly. And um, I remember when I was watching, he was like, yeah, these guys, they're just not that good at fighting. Like, that's why they do this. Like, the real good guys do blah, 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 blah. And it's just one of these dudes who doesn't know a fucking thing about what he's talking about, who in all likelihood had some exposure to to the old martial arts order and can't stand that the polarity of everything shifted right under his feet and also is probably as a person deeply insecure about who he is and has a need to tell you about the truth of fighting and his understanding and proximity to it and so therefore it confers upon him badassery slash wisdom. That's also what's happening here a little bit as well. Most people of course know fuck all about fighting and I would say I know very little and I've been around it for a long time. Um, And I also don't go around like talking about it outside of work so that's another part i would say in in my defense but um i will say the 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 benefit that we have of the new order is that it has come not entirely full circle but somewhat full circle we're now elements of karate elements of taekwondo certainly a lot of judo all of these other traditional martial arts The, the old message boards used to call them tmas traditional martial arts um Some of that has been brought back and repopularized or we've taken people who have some of those backgrounds then given them all the other skills that they need to do well in um, other martial arts and they have managed to find some success with it. So it's actually good, like the real truth is, there is value to virtually all of the other martial arts. I don't know much about Aikido, but certainly there is value to karate, there is value to Taekwondo, and there's all different kinds of styles of karate, and all different kinds of point fighting systems and whatnot, all of them tend to have actually a little bit of value. Um, It's just that, that old order of karate is best, or whatever, and you don't mix the styles, all of that got completely destroyed. By jiu-jitsu and then ultimately MMA and a lot of those people are still living in the past. This gentleman who you work with um, is, you know, back in my day, you know, it's that, that kind of fuckface. Uh, Luke, what weight class has given us the three, excuse me, has given us the best three champions across its history? Walter Wade has GSP, Usman and Hughes, that's right. Featherweight has Aldo, Max, and Volk. Um, Good options at 155 and 205, too. You don't have to limit yourself. Man, I don't know. 205 might have... I mean, 205, the very best at 205, how would you rank them? Obviously, Jones comes number one. After that, you could put Tito somewhere in that category, Randy in that category, Chuck in that category, Vanderlei Silva in that category. You could probably put somewhere in there, Vitor Belfort in that category, Rampage for a time in that category, Dan Henderson in that category... I mean, you might say that the three best would probably be Max, Volk, and Aldo, although obviously GSP, Usman, and Hughes, you'd have three guys who in each case were probably ranked pound for pound number one for a time, where you would not necessarily have that with Aldo, Max, and Volk, although I would say that those three might be the most complete of the trios we've named, but the... You know Rashad's in that list. Machine two hundred five, dude. You just have Hall of Famer after Hall of Famer after Hall of Famer after Hall of Famer, and I grant that probably Aldo, Max, and Volk will all go in as well. But um, even past those three, you just have a murderer's row of some of the you know most important fighters ever, and some of the very best ones as well. Not just guys who were good for their era, but whose whose ability would um, you know it would it would scale over time. Uh, Yeah, I'd probably go two hundred five. But I grant, I grant that Aldo, Max, and Volk would probably be the most complete of those three. Luke, you often talk about fighters being successful with an Elite A skill set and then having a B skill that you can still win fights. Who are some fighters you can see progressing towards having a good B skill, which can propel them to next tier of their respective uh, context? Good, great, elite, all-timer. I mean, I think a great example of this, speaking of uh, welterweight, would be Um, well, you could go in two directions, actually. You could go Kamaru Usman, who made his way to the title with obviously more than just wrestling, but that was a really key critical component of it. He had a great style for it. He had a great um, attacking insight about what particular techniques to use and kind of was... I think best in class for a while at the what the more modern elite wrestlers were doing both inside the fence line and outside of it, or I should say against the fence line and inside of it, and then really developed his striking to the point where he's was able to defend titles with just that or at least you know make that a big component of beating Gilbert Burns, make it a big component of beating, obviously, Jorge Masvidal. That's a great example. Or you could go with St. Pierre. St. Pierre had a karate background, really worked on his jiu-jitsu. So striking, I think you could actually say was a little bit more of a first love For St. Pierre, I mean remember he did get submitted by Matt Hughes uh, in his first fight with Hughes, although that was something of being overwhelmed by the moment. But then late in his career really relied on his wrestling despite not having a Division 1 background, which at the time was something of a, not exactly a dividing line, but you could see that the Division 1 guys had real clear advantages at that time over the ones who didn't. Um, those would be two great examples. Um, there's, you can go that through almost any weight class and you could find somebody else like that. But that's sort of what I'm talking about is something that is a really clear, like it, the ace. The ace skill is so good, it's going to be very rare you're not going to be able to win with it all the time. But there are going to be some instances, probably over time, when you're not going to be able to rely on it strictly. And so what are the other skill sets that you have that can also be relied upon to beat your other uh, opponents. And the the A skill and the B skill don't have to be equal, but the B skill has to be um, sufficiently good enough that it can do what you need at the level of which you have risen. Kamar Usman's a great example of that. Easy one to point to. Um, If you were put in charge of an independent MMA Hall of Fame, what would be your inaugural class? Listen, it's not like there are people in the UFC Hall of Fame... Like, they've got a lot of the right names in there. It's just that there's a couple of problems. One, they have a lot of the, the names in there that probably don't deserve to be in there. The, the issue is not they don't have the good ones in. The issue is they have the good ones in, but also some ones that are kind of borderline. Um, and then the other issue would be that they're, the, the 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 process by which they are introduced is antithetical to the way which we understand other Hall of Fames, which are run independently of the sport and the organization itself. The UFC's Hall of Fame is is much more akin to their Employee of the Month designation, which sounds like I'm shitting on and insulting. I'm, I'm really not trying to do that. I swear I'm not trying to do that. I don't benefit by insulting people who have been in, inducted into the UFC Hall of Fame, but the process is not as rigorous. And the, the big key one is like DC just got put in. Now, DC is obviously a case where even with time between now and uh, some future vote if it ever got delayed he would still go in probably quite easily but the reality is most of these hall of fames for example have a big gap between Um, When the person finishes their career and then when they're eligible to be voted on so there isn't a recency bias like UFC just dispenses with that and they've got wings where they can put in two fighters which I understand like MMA is a little bit different in that sense where you wouldn't put in the players who played in in an amazing baseball game just because it was amazing but in fighting these individual fights can be truly historic monumental important and otherwise valuable to the audience and so Um, I I sort of get it, but it also ends up introducing people to the Hall of Fame who did not, in in individual cases, have Hall of Fame careers. Uh, In fact, not even close in certain cases. So, you know, the one guy really missing from the UFC Hall of Fame, the one person that I would be like, you know what, they really got to find a way to put him in there, uh, is Frank Shamrock. Frank Shamrock is the one that is, I mean, you know, most MMA fans, depending on when you came to the sport, you know, how much of knowledge you had, of the sport five years prior to that is probably going to be wanting. Um, And so, you know, how much do current fans really know about how great Rashad Evans was? How many fans currently know how great, you know, like, who who, do they know about some of the more interesting things Dustin Hazlett ever did? Probably not. They probably don't know a lot about that. So Frank Shamrock doesn't have a hope in that sense. But he's also been buried by a um, feud That he has had with that organization and a feud he has had with um, Dana White in particular. Now, I do know that the UFC Hall of Fame years ago tried several times to induct him and he wanted no part of it. He wanted no part of the UFC's history. I don't know if there's a way to put a guy in the Hall of Fame if he doesn't even show up. To his own Hall of Fame ceremony. That seems kind of weird, but it is regrettable that one of the most important fighters in MMA history, one of the most important fighters in UFC history, one of the most important rivalries, one of the most. I mean, he was just a vanguard of what it meant to be the next generation of MMA when he was at his peak. Certainly, you go back to the Tito Ortiz fight, and that was the original MMA rope a dope. It's Frank Shamrock times a billion, right? I mean, you, it, you know. Any history of MMA's advancement without him in it is, by definition, incomplete. You can't talk about modern MMA and the practices that you see today without talking about how Frank Shamrock was a key catalyst for change by virtue of what he was doing and what he represented, and he's not in there. And so that is a huge missing piece. Um, it's weird. I don't know what the equivalent would be in, 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 in um, baseball or football. I don't know, it's like not having Babe Ruth or something. It'd be be weird. You'd be like, that dude's not in it? Like, that's kind of how important he was. Any chance of OG room service diaries coming back? Love the 2.0, but I can't be the only one who still wishes we'd have 1.0. Yeah, I think there is some chance of it. it. It's complicated these days. Like, you know. The answer is yes, but I don't know exactly... What to tell you beyond that And I wish that was vodka It's just water Um, This was a little bit out of left field Uh, Luke, what is your take on parents staying together for the kids? Yeah, don't As a 29-year-old father of a 1-year-old There has been ups and downs And I would be lying if I said I didn't think about these things I ultimately come to wanting nothing more than this to work out but would love to hear your perspective on this topic. Well, I could not possibly weigh in on the particulars of your situation, nor could I give you any advice about what to do about that. However, uh, I am the child of divorce. Uh, which you might be like, oh, well, if, if you're the product of divorce, then we sure do want to stay together. Um, I don't mean it that way. What I mean to say is... Um, there is, a, in, there is a significant amount of evidence at this point that um, two, two people thinking that staying together ultimately benefits the child in the long run, um, it, it, it just, there's not, there's not a lot of evidence to support that claim. I mean, aside from the fact that it would be dubious value to the child, Uh, The other part is that you would be living kind of a life of misery or some kind of totally broken and uh, worthless marriage. You know, just some kind of swamp of sadness and inescapability. I don't think that's any way to live either. Um, And again, there is really no evidence that it produces meaningfully better outcomes for the child. The only thing I would say is, and this is what I would be kind of... the, The one piece of advice I would give by virtue of having lived a little bit of this... Not all divorces or separations have to be acrimonious. They don't have to be acrimonious. You can decide how acrimonious you want them to be. Now your partner has to make a decision about that as well, but uh, the big key is just because you separate doesn't mean that um, the parents couldn't still work together as a parental pair, not a romantic pair any longer, but a parental pair um, for the betterment of the child. I can tell you my parents did not do that. And it was awful. It was truly awful. I had to go to court a million times. I had to testify, depositions, you know, watching my parents argue in the fucking courtroom, like in the court hall, outside in the parking lot. This went on for years. Dude, when I graduated high school, um, I had to take a, parent, a picture with my mom on one side of the street, and then I had to cross the street and take a picture with my dad because they wouldn't, Get together even for a picture, like that's a choice that they made, right? That was nothing I did, and that was nothing that they had to do. One of them, both of them, could have taken it upon themselves to. And that by the way, that's just a small example of all the shit I've I've seen. That is like, that is but a but a fart in the breeze of all the toxicity I had to inhale. Um, but it was so. It's just such a clear example. I remember I was like even even this, and I remember you have to you have to understand I was leaving for. Uh, boot camp. Uh, I graduated high school on a Friday. I went to boot camp on Monday, so I had like you know this sort of small amount of time to enjoy this whole moment, and they wouldn't even let me do that. So that's the choice. The choice is you don't owe anything to your romantic partner. Um, well, you owe what your your commitment is, but if you're no longer of the belief that this is a fruitful thing that you were willing to do the rest of your life. The question is, how do you navigate that as a parent afterwards without bringing the acrimony of your failed romance onto your kid? That's what you have to figure out. And uh, I can tell you, a lot of people don't ever think about that. And I don't think my parents, as much as I love them and as much as I might miss my mother, um, I think that they fucked that up completely. So don't do that. Whatever else you do, don't do that. Let's see. Luke, Khabib recently stated that Eagle FC needs four to five years to become the number one promotion. Is this a realistic goal for any promotion to surpass the UFC? No, 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 it's not even remotely realistic. Now, it is potentially possible that they could rival um, in four to five years uh, PFL, Bellator 1, and even surpass them. I think that might be, I don't know how likely that is, but I would certainly consider that a, you know, Something, to, some, something worth taking seriously, something worth examining further. But the USC is basically a monopoly. Like, you're short of government intervention and the power of law, and that, or, you know, some cataclysmic thing that completely implodes that company uh, internally. No, it is not possible. It is not possible at all. Uh, Do I think there should be an MMA Hall of Fame separate from the UFC? I mean, sort of when when you ask that, it's like, would you like to see one? Yes. Would I like to live in a world where someone independently took the time to do it and conferred upon it the amount of status it would need to thrive and succeed? Yes, of course I do. I just don't see that as particularly likely. Uh, MMA is very, very um, tribal, clicky, um, balkanized, and broken up into a million pieces. There is... And, and everyone has, there's like warring factions internally in the industry in any number of different directions. There simply isn't enough cohesion. I mean, I think the reason why you don't, in fact, see an MMA Hall of Fame, partly you could argue the UFC has dissuaded the various people that wanted to entertain those kinds of things. Again, by virtue of whatever differences that they had. But the other one would just be, I think, more commonly, um, the industry is too fucked up for it. What questions would Shavkat Rachmanov answer with a win over Neil Magny this weekend? Um, It depends what Neil Magny does. Does it not? Rachmanov has had the freedom to kind of let overmatched guys walk into a lot of traps. So, number one. Like, for example, Rachmanov will allow his opponent to um, threaten a takedown that he pulls them up off the waist and then lets himself get pressed into the fence line all because he's asking for it. They think that what they're doing is setting something up but all they're doing is giving him the eventual takedown, right? Um, and I did a whole tape study on this on this channel. You can go and check that out. There, there, there is a lot of evidence for that. Um, also, he sometimes gets away with certain things that he, he might be trying. But the big question for me is one, um, you know, Magny has an elite gas tank, will have a reach advantage, certainly a competition advantage in terms of who he has faced and, and what he has seen before. So it's like, you know, when you ask answering questions, it's like, t- how far does Rachmanov's ability scale, number one? Number two, for, if he doesn't walk into trap, oh, A, does, does Magny also walk into traps? And if he doesn't, how else does Rachmaninoff pursue the fight when the guys don't walk into obvious, not obvious, but, um, you know, the tape is clear on what kind of traps he set. If you have an underhook against him along the fence line, you should be very, very careful with that, unless you have completely flattened his hips against it. I would also say, like, um, for an opponent who's going to move the way he's going to move and how he's going to jab, what kind of answer does he have for that? The the, the answer will, of course, be to what extent, or rather, what game plan Magni ultimately employs against him and what answers he has for that but the, the the way to think about it is and I kind of just sort of telegraphed it is not just as he does the things he's been using at this level scale up but what does Magni show us that is further true about Rachmaninoff? right I mean you didn't fully understand John Jones when he was beating Andre Gusmão you didn't fully understand John Jones when he was beating you know Jake O'Brien it wasn't until some of the better guys were up there, like Bader pushed him a little bit, not much. Um, Shogun showed us a little bit. I mean, he got whooped too, but you know, that's when you saw a lot of other things that you didn't see in the Jake O'Brien fight, that you didn't see in the Goosemouth fight, that you didn't necessarily necessarily see in the Stefan Bonner fight. Some of those things carried through, but there was just all this... You know, It's like when you open a door, you walk into a small room, you get a little bit more, but what if you opened up another door and it just opened up into this vast universe of all these things? That's sort of what beating an elite opponent tells you. It's just a much better fact-finding operation. It tells you much more, not about how every fight will go, but it's much more insightful about what is really possible versus beating someone that's terribly overmatched. Um, I think that's sort of what we're trying to figure out here, is how, what are the true depths of of this person's game what do some of the things scale for yes but also what are some of the things that we don't really know about him that we need to see answered by virtue of what a in my judgment is a very good fighter neil magni credentialed experienced motivated prepared um you know that's a very tough guy to beat like chumps don't beat him so what does the victory there tell us about the particulars of shavkat Rachmanov? and in some ways it is at this point unknown, um, he will tell us more about what we're looking at. We'll get a much more complete picture for some positive and maybe for some negative too. There might be some other things that have to get cleaned up, but that's the issue there. The issue is it unlocks, a, if they are as good as we think they are, these moments, and if they're not, then then there's no there's no conversation to be had. But if he is as good as I think he is, and it's that a, a much better opponent, gives you a much bigger window to look into something to get a better look at what is actually there. Um, Luke, as a fellow former Marine reservist, I get massive amounts of shit from former and current active duty Marines based on my service record. Yeah, that's hilarious. Uh, I served from uh, 2006 to 12 and never deployed, but served honorably and got an honorable discharge upon my separation. Yeah, I was in 98 to 04. Um... How have you dealt with any pushback, whether external or internal, via survivor's guilt? Let me tell you, I don't have survivor's guilt at all. Towards your service record as someone who didn't deploy. I don't think twice about it. I don't think twice about it. Listen, um... I went to Paris Island June 9th of 1998. I did the experience. They put an Eagle Globe and Anchor on me. I earned it. I got promoted to private first class. I got promoted to Lance Corporal. I got promoted to Corporal. I got promoted to Sergeant. I earned every one of those things. I shot on the range. I qualified every year. I had a first class PFT. You're not going to take anything from me, dude. You're not going to take anything from me. I went to MCT. I went to my the various um, uh, uh, MOS schools that I had to go to to get Qualified like everything the Marine Corps asked of me, I did. And the reality was, the reason why my unit didn't go was because, well, they did actually go. So the way it worked is, folks may not realize this: there is still artillery around. Again, I used the M19 or eights when I was in. Now they use the M77s. Uh, I don't know much about the M77. Uh, I'm sure it's just sort of like the same version we used, but better. I, I, in fact, I didn't use the MP4. The MP4 was starting to get circulated in when I left. I, I used the M16A2. Um, but uh, the reality is, listen, it's not that there's no valor to what all of the servicemen did at those times when they fought for something they believed in, or more importantly, they were trying to save people that they cared about. They were trying to you know, protect their friends and the guys next to them. And like, I, I always encourage, you, if you've never seen the documentary Restrepo, that's the one you need to check out because that will tell you a lot about where my head is at. Um, there is valor in fighting for the man next to you, yeah. There is no valor in dying for George Bush. Um, not, not like that. There might be, there might be valor in the way in which you served the Marine Corps or you fought for your country or the person next to you. I do not mean to diminish the the lives that we lost or the sacrifices. I, again, I, not many of you have been. I've been to Walter Reed a number of times many, many times. I have seen what those wars did and those young men served honorably and our country needs to do as much for them as they possibly can. They will have my respect until the day that I die. But George Bush sending people on a human rights disaster of historical proportion, I don't lose any sleep not being a part of that. And so the reason why I ultimately missed it was because I was in artillery and at the time it was seen, this was, you know, again, nine eleven changed a lot, but there was a lot of thinking at the time that warfare would look like. In the, in the late 90s, there was still a little bit of a belief that warfare would look something like with the post-World War II order of what the top generals and war college thinkers thought. The war college is here um, not far from where I live. Yes, there is a thing called the war college if you've never heard of it. There's also the Institute of War. There was a lot of thinking that you know, large mechanized... Um, units would still be really really important and what they found over time certainly in trying to get into iraq was that they had a use for artillery but that it was somewhat limited because a lot of it was sort of corralling and controlling civilian populations you can't just shell that i guess unless you're the russians and you're fighting the ukrainians but the whole idea is the americans can't make much use of that um yes artillery is designed around shoot move communicate but there was a clear sense that the Marine Corps doing that was redundant to what the Army was already doing because the Army does artillery as well. So there was a 9-11 kind of kicked into gear a lot of like, oh, our thinking post-World War II needs to change, and the Marine Corps shouldn't just only offer redundant services to the Army. So they had a very small use for artillery, and so what the Marine Corps eventually did over time as the Iraq War dragged on was they took units like mine... And they converted them to grunt companies, infantry companies. So I got out in December, December 04. December 04. And I think by March 2005, my unit got called up and activated. And they got sent to Iraq. Um, they got converted to a, a rifle company. And they did prisoner transport in Fallujah. You know, <laughs> do I do I think twice about missing that? Nope. Sure don't. Now, if the if and I and by the way, like you can ask my friends and my family, I mean you guys realize I, I realize you can't because you don't have access to them, but um and you don't have to believe what I'm about to tell you. But dude, I was ready to go. I was ready to go. I had my power of attorney done. I had accepted that like I owed the Marine Corps, I owed everyone next to me, and that's just gonna be what it was. But then as time wore on, and like again as I got into my thirties and I visited Walter Reed and I saw the stuff, I was like, Jesus Christ, like this was This was a disaster beyond disasters. This was a humanitarian. and I can only imagine what it did to Iraq, much less the guys that got sent home here. Yeah, I don't. There's nothing that a single guy in the Marine Corps is going to take away from me. I know who I am. I know exactly what I did. I know exactly what I earned. And if they don't respect it, that's on them. Um, I don't have. I'm not insecure about what I achieved and what I earned in the Marine Corps, even a little bit. I'm, in fact, very proud of it. And uh, I always will be. So if that's not enough for some other, you know, uh, grunts or gun rocks or whoever, that's their cross to bear. It's not mine. I sleep. I sleep quite well at night, and then you should as well. Watching Buterbeev dominate Joe Smith Jr. at the age of 37, do we have to rethink where we put an athlete's prime? No. More and more, we are seeing champions dominate in combat sports in their well. A little bit. A little bit. More and more we are seeing champions dominate in combat sports in their mid to late 30s. Usman, Musasi, Crawford... And people sometimes refer to 35 as over the hill. But in most cases, with sports science being advanced as it is, that just isn't the case anymore. I would need to see more advanced studies about how the prime has moved. It typically used to be somewhere between 28 to 32 was kind of like that window. And again, there could be 34, 35. Sometimes guys would fit into it. And there could be people who were like got into the sport, whatever sport it might have been, really young. And then they kind of age out 29, 30, 31, 32. Um, so, you know, it's always a range. I will say that sports science has probably... Lengthened um, certain careers, you know. Uh, Beterbiev got or Beterbiev got into the sport, relatively speaking, a little bit later, so that partly explains his age. Um, but I would also say, and like you know, I'm not going to mention. I'm not. I, I have no evidence for Usman Musasi Crawford. I, I'm I'm actually speaking more about like things like you see in soccer or American football or whatever. Dude, there's just drugs lengthening careers. I mean, you think some of these guys in their late 30s and early 40s are doing it just because they, like, take great care of themselves. You know, I mean, what fucking, what doofus do you have to be to believe this shit? They All these guys have chemists. All of them have some kind of proprietary blend that doesn't show up on tests, tests that are otherwise quite easy to beat. Dude, if you see a guy 37, 38, 39 in, like, a sport like baseball, you know, where you have, what, 100, nearly, nearly 100, what is it, 160, 170 games a fucking year, dude, the Nats are going to lose, like, 115 games this season. You know that's how many games they play dude no one's doing that game at 37 38 39 40 who isn't on drugs in my in my judgment or at least at some point in their career it didn't take them you know like <laughs> this idea that like oh I pay a lot of, I pay I pay a chef to come over and cook salmon and asparagus and then uh I got a masseuse who just irons out all the kinks yeah I mean this might work on rubes you can you can feed that to the public and then what they also do always pay attention to the athletes who make a big show about public. Good, right? Like they do a lot for charities. Um, Again, for example, there there are going to be total good faith exceptions to that. I believe that Dustin Poirier does care for his Lafayette community because he deeply cares about it. I would not put him in this list. Again, I'm talking in the totality of sports, not just combat sports. But if you see someone who had gone through and done like a lot for like establishing, you know, some kind of foundation and there's a big show about it and the media just heaps praise on them. And again, we're talking about team sports here. Dude, that's a number one red flag for me. Number one, it's like let me see let me see if I get this right. You're 38 years old in a sport where most people don't even make it past 31, 32 at an elite level. You have a charitable foundation which you use probably for good purposes but also to launder your image and you want me to believe that this is just because you get a good night's rest on a fucking waterbed and you sleep for 2 minutes in a hyperbaric chamber and you eat salmon on Tuesdays get the fuck out of here all those guys have chemists all of them all of motherfucking them and you guys want to buy into the fiction that they're just they're just doing they're just built different yeah they are built different by virtue of anabolics that's why they're built different you know or whatever whatever proprietary blend they're using cuz not everything is a steroid some things have different Performance enhancing benefits. But I I mean, to me, to me, all these people, again, we'll talk about team sports to keep it simple here. All these people extending their primes until their late 30s and early 40s. Like, wow, how can they be so productive? Because they're on fucking drugs. That's why. And it doesn't bother me that they're on drugs. I don't mind it. What bothers me is that they want you to believe that this is achievable because God bless them. You know, I'm highly favored by God. No, motherfucker. Yeah, a little bit you are. A little bit. Obviously, you know, they, they are very, very good athletes. And they could probably achieve a professional elite level even without drugs. I'm sorry, dude. You're not playing a, a team sports like this, you know, 15 plus seasons. And you're still doing what you did in your 7th or 8th season uh, without drugs. It's just, it's not possible. So, you know. You can miss me with all that fucking hero worship shit. Sorry, they're on drugs. Luke, can you talk about what why you are still holding on to your fandom for the Washington Commanders, man? Fuck the Commanders football team, despite the Snyder years. Um, well, they weren't always a disaster. I mean, <laughs> I remember when Steve Spurrier went to the what was it, the Tokyo Dome, and then ran up the score, and then they got their asses handed to him in the season. Uh, I still live and die with the Pistons because of what they did in 2004, despite them being as competitive as a wet napkin in the last 15 years. The on-field shit is a problem. I certainly acknowledge, and I don't like it. Obviously, it's bad. They haven't won anything. Then every time they go to the playoffs, they basically get stomped, and they've been, what, once and once or twice in the last 15 years, whatever it is. Not, not many times. Um, but it's not even that anymore. It's like, dude... N- On one level, they'll never be a success with Dan Snyder at the helm. Like, that's just a reality. They'll never be good with him there. They might be better than they are now, or we'll see how good they are with Carson Wentz. You know, again, I don't have high expectations, but we'll see. I don't know how good they're going to be. They might be better this season. And they might get to a point where they win, you know, 12 games or something. But, um, A, I don't see them ever winning anything meaningful while he's there, number one. And number two, he is such odious. Basura that I can no longer stand him I cannot stand him he is every he's every stereotype you hate about billionaires stuffed into one billion one one billionaire you know he made his money early on hasn't done fuck all since then to really I mean except holding on to the football team as like you know it's like it's like Bitcoin in 2021 or something. It just keeps going up a value. And you're like, well, I guess I'm more rich now because I'm holding on to this. But he hasn't done anything meaningful in the business community whatsoever. Did you see that there was a 50, 50 50, former employees of the team have come out and spoken against him, either in depositions or in other forms? A deep culture of sexual harassment. So again, we're adding on to the fact that they're just fucking losers by virtue of this guy can't, do anything to manage this team whatsoever which by the way like shouldn't he be the owner not managing them right that's the gm's job but of course the gm was his best friend bruce allen for 10 years and they just fucked off on the job and he was heavy-handed and you got to draft rg3 even though maybe we don't want him it's a whole thing but on top of all the losing there's just this profound culture of sexual harassment good old boy shit petty vindictiveness they did a deal with the learners. Do you guys know who the learners are? The learners with the family that basically bought the Washington Nationals, right? A winning team. Now, not this season, but they at least brought a World Series here and brought a lot of joy to the city. Like in general, they're blowing up the team now to rebuild. But okay, it was a they, you know they they did they did something for the city during my time here. My my second stint. Now, obviously, they didn't exist when I was a kid. But uh, <laughs> one former employee under oath. Uh, in deposition, said that Dan Snyder, that he, he did a deal with the learners because they needed parking space for FedEx. And so he didn't like the deal. They had to do it because they needed more parking, according to this employee's testimony. But uh, he, just, he, he felt like he, Dan Snyder didn't like the deal, and the learners had a box at FedEx Field. Dan Snyder made this guy go into this guy's box and pour milk on the carpeted floor there so that whenever... The learners would go to their box to watch at the time the Redskins game. was like who the fuck would ever want to go do that? Because they, I mean, they've been sucking no matter what their name has been. Uh, That it would smell rancid in the room. Like this is the this is the guy. So you add on just a fucking born loser when it comes to managing any of these operations. Then on top of it, this absolutely grotesque, utterly unjustifiable. Entire workplace culture of sexual harassment Then you add in the petty vindictiveness Then you add into the fact That now he wants to ask the public To fund him a new fucking stadium Yo, fuck that guy, dude There shouldn't be one penny Of public taxpayer money Whether you live in Maryland Which I don't whether you live in Virginia, which I don't, or whether you live in the district, which I do. You think I want a single red cent going to that loser? Not a chance in my life. Dude, it won't be worth it. What do you think will happen? All of the promises that he made about how he's gonna transform the area around FedEx Field. Dude, I, I live not like nine miles from FedEx Field, FedExfield. Landover, Maryland, he didn't do shit for it. Nothing, zero. What do you think he's gonna do for Dumfries or Woodbridge or the old place where RFK is? Zip, that's what he's gonna do, or just make it fucking worse. He'll just make it fucking, he has the anti Midas touch, right? Rather than the Midas touch where everything turns to gold, everything he touches, he just fucking ruins. He's unsupportable, you cannot support him. He is everything you hate about rich people, times a thousand, entitled, overestimates his own abilities in the worst ways, treats everyone else like absolute shit, And the one thing when I was a kid that brought the city together was everyone loved the very successful football team. Yo, Art Monk is still a hero around here, man. Art Monk is a a fucking legend around these parts and all of that has been buried under his mountains of failure. Multiple congressional committees investigating this fraud. Dude, how could anyone support him? I don't know what the team is going to do, and I don't blame the players. They're just living their life. They got drafted or traded or whatever. NFL careers are short. I'm not mad at them. Go make their money, and I do hope that they win on the field. But if it's at all attached to Dan Snyder, count me out. I will not be watching games. I I won't go to the – I mean, it was never in question I wouldn't go to the stadium. Now I will not watch games at all. I'll watch them if they make the playoffs or whatever because I watch the NFL playoffs. That's interesting to me. But I'm done. I'm, I'm out. I have turned in my key card, and I'll come back. I can't go root for another team because I live here, and I really believe you should, you know, if there's a team in your area, you should cheer for them. And everyone's like, oh, you cheer for Madrid. Right, but I go to DC United games all the time too. I have as many DC United jerseys as I do Madrid. You know, it's a bullshit team, but I I do support them. Uh, I I, I can't cheer for the Ravens. I don't live in Baltimore. It's just I can't do something like that. But I for sure as fuck am not going to support anything Dan Snyder is attached to ever. Where does Zabit Megamed Sharapov rank on MMA's greatest what-ifs with his recent retirement? Also, he thanks me for some ways I present arguments. Uh, He's high. He's high on the list. That is not a small thing. He's high on the list. Um, Oh, I didn't even mention about Dan Snyder. And they fucked up the Sean Taylor Memorial, right? Like, Sean Taylor, one of the most beloved people in this whole fucking city that... You just—I mean, I cannot tell you how much Sean Taylor means to people who like are from this area, like from from this area—and they fucked up his jersey retirement in the worst fucking way. Ama- like, how do you fuck that up? The guy got murdered in his home. Like, how do you mess that up? How do you rush that out? How do you fuck this up? You fuck it up because everything he touches, everything he touches, turns to shit. He is not capable at this point, aside from the initial money he made. Back in the early 90s, early to mid 90s, he is not capable of doing anything correctly. He is he is maladjusted. Anyway, getting back to Zabit. On the what ifs thing. Um, he's high on the list. There's a few other ones you would put on there. It, uh, shouts to Josh Gross because there was someone who wrote an article. Please forgive me. It was on my timeline. I do not remember the person that wrote it. You can see it on my timeline. I, I tweeted it from a, maybe a day or two ago. Um, and they had put together a list of what-ifs. You should go see it. But one of the names that was not on that list, which you could definitely add to it, was one that Josh Gross brought up, which was um, Philip Miller. Philip Miller beat Jake Shields in like his second pro bout. He only had like 16 of them and went undefeated. And then kind of just said, I, I'm going to go do something else. I think he's a cop in like LA or... Somewhere in California. That's like the biggest what if. But there's some other ones too. Like Mark Ellis was a guy who everyone thought was going to be the next big thing. I think he had, what, one or two pro fights and was like, I'm done. Rulon Gardner would be one you could put on that list. Nick Denis, the Ninja Love, was one I also thought should have been on that list. Um, but you could put other ones in there too. Like how far would Gina Carano have gone? That's kind of one that I think would be kind of interesting. She might come back. Who knows? But the reason why she might come back is because, you know, obviously her movie career is now. I think it's probably fair to say not so much the toilet, but it has been severely damaged. And so that might be something that she comes back to. We'll see. Um, But yeah, there's a lot of folks. But Zabit getting as far as he did and looking as good as he did, all for it to just stop. um, That is unusual. That is highly unusual. Most of the time, somebody has some kind of like disastrous fight or... You know, they were always kind of halfway in, and then, eh. I would also add somewhat, you're going to laugh at this maybe, I would somewhat add Brock Lesnar to that list. And the reason why I say that is because that dude was a terrifying force until he got diverticulitis. And as someone who has had diverticulitis, um, I cannot believe how bad he let that go. Let me tell you something, folks. I I had a what would be described as a very mild to moderate case, and it was like not debilitatingly painful, but it was noticeably uncomfortable. The kind of thing where your body is like a flashing light is going off and it's begging you to do something about it. For him to let that go to the point where, I don't know if you guys remember this or if you guys have ever heard the story, but the basic idea is that if you don't have enough like fiber or water or enough in your digestive tract to to, to work properly, basically um, you can get, everything can get stopped up in there and then that can form little pockets, diverticuli, in the lining. And if you let that go long enough, well, by the way, those can get infected, which is bad enough. He let it go to the next stage beyond that. He let it go to the point where it perforated his stomach lining and his digestive tract lining and uh, un- or partially digested food was falling into his body cavity. Like, <laughs> I, I realize he's tough as shit, but that's like, way too tough for your own good like not rational tough at all uh which I guess rationality and toughness are somewhat at odds but I mean that is that is strange to for I mean you know because at that point you get a fever and you can you can he could have died from that from sepsis basically he could have died um he just he let it go till then and you know they had to take out like a foot or more of his digestive tract and I don't think he was ever the same after that. I really think that that kind of altered him. That's a really, really severe, terrible thing. Also, in terms of like stomach sensitivity to trauma, right? Because someone's going to punch you or kick you or whatever. Um, and I do wonder what would he have been if he had never been. Because dude, he was marching people down prior to diverticulitis, and I don't think he was ever the same afterwards. And you could also be like, well, Usada, this and that. And go, yeah, okay, fine. I mean, that's also that's also a part of the story, but. I do wonder what diverticulitis did to him. Um You speak highly of one championship scoring system fighting as a whole rather than round by round. Yes, that's true. It's also I mean it's really the Pride system. They got it from Pride, but yeah. Can you think of examples of UFC and Bellator fights where this would be would have totally changed the rightful outcome? My thought is that Jones versus Reyes, that's a great example, wouldn't be all that controversial if the fight was scored as a whole. Now, the reality is, in fairness to the 10-point must system, that fight took place in Texas. And... Okay. Okay. Uh... And so part of what happened in Texas is that um, forward pressure still matters there, right? So there's aggression, and then there's effective aggression. And effective aggression isn't just walking someone down. If you're walking someone down and it's conferring benefits by virtue of walking them down, then that is effective aggression. There's other forms of effective aggression, but that would be one version of it. But of course, if you're walking someone down and they're anticipating that and setting traps and then popping you and going, well, then you're not really employing effective aggression. Think Rousey Holm, right? Rousey was walking her down. Who was the one getting tuned up? Wasn't Holm, right? So that's the idea. In Texas, they operated under an old rule set where almost like a wrestler's mentality that, you know, that, for example, there's there's you can't flee the mat or something like that, And certainly in freestyle, and there's obviously points for it or penalties for it, I should say. Um, they kind of had that mentality where they kind of wanted you to walk an opponent down. And so I guess they had put that into the, the skill set. But as MMA striking and overall fighting and ability advanced, it clearly is some, like an anachronistic old way of thinking. I don't know how you can get a decision for Jones in that particular fight absent that anachronistic, or I should say outdated, scoring criteria. If you were using the modern criteria, yes, Jones came on late. Okay, fair enough. I I, I grant. But Reyes, to me, clearly won the first three. I mean, clearly won them. Um, and should have been rewarded for it. So the point I'm trying to make is you wouldn't necessarily need the one or pride system to get a better outcome. You could have gotten it with a much more modern 10-point must system. But I would also agree that um, the one... Or pride system would have made that, I think, by a competent judge, um, e- easy to call there for Reyes as well. That Re- Dominic Reyes should have been the UFC light heavyweight champion for a time. He got that taken from him. Um, it's just a reality. Uh, how has been the adjustment to barefoot shoes? Good. I am along, do I have my other ones here? No, I don't have them here, I put them, in, I put them away, but uh, I am along that process myself and I've noticed marked improvements, also some new aches. Yeah, it turns out that, um, so once when I was 14 and once when I was 21, the 21 was when I was in the Marines actually, it was actually on, um, it was actually at Marine combat training in Camp Lejeune. Uh, I went there and I absolutely, obliterated my right ankle which i had done when i was 14 years old as well in both cases i was on crutches for months i mean it took forever for my right ankle to heal and i noticed something i was getting i have my left toe is the one that's more messed up which is one problem my right toe is actually my right big toe is actually pretty good um but my right heel i get pain in all the time i think i have tendinopathy in my achilles heel because if you actually look at my left calf and my right calf they're somewhat differently shaped and it's the right calf that is um looks a little bit unusual you wouldn't notice unless you really paid attention but then when you see it you can't unsee it i have a hunch that it came from the fact that i had torn the my feet to shreds my ankles to shreds and maybe didn't properly heal it and uh now those chickens are coming home to roost a little bit with tendinopathy i'm seeing someone for it here pretty soon but um, I have a podiatrist who I'm going to see who is a, a specialist in this kind of thing. But what point I'm trying to make is the barefoot shoes reveal to you things that your regular shoes do not. What folks don't realize is most regular shoes act like a cast on your arm or your foot, rather. Um, if you have a cast on your arm, it will, your muscle will atrophy while it's in the cast. It'll be protected, but it will atrophy. Shoes, modern shoes, Nike's, Adidas, whatever, that's how they work. They work like casts, and your muscles and your feet don't work right. Now, everyone's going to be a little bit different, and they're going to have different realities. This won't be one-to-one, but the basic reality is that, and I don't think my ankle and my feet muscles and everything else in between ever were properly re-strengthened, and now I've got tendinopathy or tendon basically degradation in that whole area by virtue of untreated uh, trauma m- exacerbated by atrophy from the wrong kinds of shoes. So, yes, you do get new aches and pains, but all that's happening is it's not really the shoes causing that. In fact, it's the absence of the cast of the old shoe that is revealing that. The the barefoot shoes or the minimalist shoes reveal that to you. <sighs> There's a question here about BC that I'm just not going to read for his sake. Um, Early thoughts on Cannoneer's chances to beat Izzy. I have been thinking about this a lot. I've been watching a lot of Cannoneer fights today for something I'm working on. Um, You'll hear me talk about this in the pregame preview that we do with Chuck Mendenhall. I actually feel like this could be a pretty dangerous fight for Izzy. I mean, the reality is this. If you just look at what Izzy has done and you look at what Jared has done, Izzy has done a lot more and has done a lot better. And in that sense, and looks to be the you know the vastly superior striker. And in that sense, um, you just sort of feel like, well, what chance would a guy like Kennanier have? And I understand that. And again, I'm favoring Izzy to win. What is my formal pick? My formal pick is Izzy to win. But Kennanier, he can be a little bit tricky. Um, he's extremely strong. He is very well-rounded. The real key... This is what I'm kind of examining. I'll kind of tell you about it. The one thing I'm examining is how he deals with active leg kickers. People are, for some reason, in deep denial about this. Every time I bring it up, I get ratioed on Twitter for it because no one wants to accept it. But it just you can like this or you can hate this. It's just the reality. Even if Izzy can't get to you with his hands, and even if you don't think they're impactful, Izzy is very good at doing two things. One, limiting the damage you can strike him with. And two, landing a lot of leg kicks. Even if nothing else lands, he doesn't get a takedown, he doesn't really score with the hands that much, can't get a knee into the clinch or whatever. Bro, he will keep chopping all the time. And sometimes that's the only offense in a round. Sometimes that's by far the only meaningful offense that happens in a round. And you just kind of have to count it. I cannot, dude, it's not that he only wins with that. That is not what I am saying. He has obviously a very good, very sophisticated striking game. but when guys are extra specially defensive with him and they and they don't rush him and they don't you know fall into traps and he has to be real careful about what he does and he has to be mindful of his range, dude he will just he'll just stack those one on top of the other and he will win rounds that way he he will defend championships that way and I know it drives some of his critics crazy, which I sort of understand, but at this point not really. There's plenty of tape on him to to understand this. So, like, I think it's going to be incumbent upon Jared to mix up the range. But at the end of the day, what will he do to stop an active leg kicker? It's something I'm kind of studying here. And there's no one really like Izzy. So some of this you have to kind of mix and match and play around with. But um, if he can't solve that problem, I don't see how he wins. If he can solve that problem, if he can take that away, a la what Blahovich did against Adesanya or Adesanya, um, then he has a real shot. He's got a great shot. Um, it's just that, you know, for example, Jack Hermanson, which is a very different fighter, very different kind of fight, was able to land 13 of 16 leg kicks on him. You know, and you look at some of the other guys, they landed a significant amount on him. Robert Whitaker did not. In fact, what's, what's interesting is that Cannonier is also an active leg kicker himself. So that part could get interesting, but I don't think he'll beat Izzy doing that. So, the real clear question to me is: dude, when all these other guys solve for all the other parts of Izzy's game, what they don't solve for is how his feints and distance management and setups feed leg kicks, and how the accumulation of leg kicks helps him win rounds, which helps him win championships. It sounds overly simplified, and of course, there is more to the story. It is amazing to me that this far into his career, people have not fully appreciated how true that is. If you take away the leg kicks, it takes away not everything from his game, not all of it. That's not true either. There's still a big portion of it. But that is the fallback for him a lot of times. That's a place he can comfortably go to to win. Well, take that away and push him to a different level of or different range or different strategy that he has to go to to win. Let's see what happens then. But if Whitaker, excuse me, if Cannoneer can't do that, forget it. Let's see. Anything else kind of interesting? What role do big MMA gyms like Sanford ATT play in the fighter pay discussion? I'm not sure what you mean. Are they active participants or just cashing in on growing MMA popularity? Well, the, most of the big gyms have been around for a while. Sanford is, I guess, relatively new, but ATT's been around for a long time. AKA's been around for a really long time, although in a different way. What you have to understand about these gyms that you see, these super gyms, is they are designed as a solution to the problem of fighter pay. <laughs> That's what they are. I mean, that by itself. I mean, obviously, Dan Lambert's trying to turn a profit. He's It's more than that. But... There was a real clear point in time, and some of this has gone on, and it's still true in large part. Not entirely. You're starting to see a little bit of this not true at the very, very elite level. But the reality is they the fighters had to get together, share coaches, share one another as training partners, because they couldn't afford an individual camp. Conor can afford an individual camp. Canelo can afford an individual camp. Hell, even Edgar Belonga can afford an individual camp. Most fighters cannot afford an individual camp. They, can, they have to... Yes, they'll do some things on their own, and they'll pay for a little bit extra on their own. But the reality is they need coaches that everyone kind of shares the expense. They share the the gym fees to maintain everything. Everything is kind of a – it's a little commune. It's funny that everyone's got these right-wing um, <laughs> economic beliefs when they're really living out little socialist um, – <laughs> A little economies there, but I'm, I'm mostly kidding. Neither here nor there. The, the, what I'm trying to tell you is that it's just a way of defraying costs by virtue of everyone picking up the load. The, the trade-off to that is that you don't get all the individual attention that you would if, obviously, you could afford your own um, camp, right? That's the role that they play. They're almost a solution or at least some kind of way to address the fight-or-pay problem to still get ostensibly world-class training. And, there's again, there's benefits and trade-offs. Like it, it used to be the case that if someone came from like a camp you didn't hear of, OSP was one of those guys where he like never went to a big camp and he had a lot of success. And that was somewhat anomalous when he was doing it. Now that's less true. You're seeing a lot of people come out of smaller camps that are still very, very good or even mid-sized camps that are still very, very good. Um, but those are usually in like small towns or you know whatever. They, 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 where the defraying those costs aren't as important. The bigger gyms getting together was just a way of like, how do we get a bunch of really great people together and then share costs to get world-class opportunities? That That's kind of what those represented for a time. Let me see if I can pick out a couple more. How much weight have you and BC lost collectively in the last 12 months? Oof. Probably like 60 pounds or more. A lot. Uh, all right, I'll do this one, then we'll get to some of the paid questions here. Luke, since their second fight... Who would you say has had the better resume between Volk and Max? Ooh, that's an interesting question. And how do you feel that will impact your opinion on how the third fight goes? Personally, I think the Cater-Yair wins for Max are slightly more impressive than Ortega-Zombie for Volk. Actually, I would agree with that. As Ortega was dominated by Max throughout and eventually finished by Max, whereas Volk had trouble in that round four. Well, sort of. I mean, you know, Volk was electing to go into the mouth of the crocodile there a little bit, but I know what you mean. Certainly... Certainly the uh, the punch to Mounted guillotine combo I think is what it was For Ortega was very nice And I feel Yair and Cater Both better at this time than Zombie Yes I would agree with that Also you know The Cater fight was not Especially damaging for Max But the Yair fight was blood and guts I mean that was extremely difficult for him um, I, You could argue that or- We'll see what happens with Ortega And uh, Yair and Ortega Might go in there and give him the business It's hard to say exactly But yeah, I might agree with that But you know Listen, they gave him who they gave him. Ortega took a layoff, then came back and beat Zombie. That was a different Ortega who fought Volkanovski than the one who fought Max, I think, in fairness. Um, Korean, Zo- Korean Zombie... Um, yeah, probably not on par with with what Yair or Cater bring. I think that might be fair. But, you know, listen, man. Max and Volkanovski... They're 1A, 1B, or, wh- or wh- however you want to arrange it. I mean, they are so close in competitive ability that, yes, it might be the case that the subsequent fights that Max have had have been, you know, somewhat more impressive. But, um, you know, how would Volk do against Yair? Like, any you going to pick Yair to win? I wouldn't pick Yair to win. I have a lot of respect for Yair's game. He's very, very talented. He ain't beaten Volkanovski. So, you know, it's somewhat, somewhat of an immaterial question. Um. I can't wait for the third fight. By the way, we put out a video today on MK where BC and I rewatched the second, or excuse me, the first and second fights between Max and Volk. Oh, 49 times. <laughs> uh, if you guys want to make those jokes. But I, seriously, I would. Call, uh, we put the timer on the TV. You can watch the fights with us and we walk through everything that's happening uh, and then we score it in real time. So please go check those out. You can see what we think about them in real time as well and like how we debated what rounds should go to what. And, and I think BC would have had, had like 500 milligrams of delta-8 in this tummy when we did it all right let's see what your paid questions are and uh we'll get to that in the meantime let's see if i can put this on right hey look at that i got my computer back huh isn't that nice all right let's see okay Let's go Alright Luke If Volk wins And goes to 155 Aljo doesn't want to fight TJ At 135 in September Is the UFC solution To make the BS UFC uh, Salt Lake City co-main Aldo Morab For the interim championship Then gets TJ Aljo Then gets TJ And Aljo goes to 145 To fight Cejudo I don't well, I got to tell you, I don't think if they strip Aljo or put in an interim title, they're going to do him any favors with a big fight after that. So I wouldn't buy that. Yeah, This, this is why I feel bad for Aljamain because, I mean, listen, the guy is right now the best guy in the world and his weight class. You can say, oh, I, I believe someone else to be better, but he's the existing weight class champion. Didn't think he was going to beat Jan, and he did. And... He'll never have more leverage than he basically has right now. And I would argue he has almost none. He probably has a little bit, but not much. The UFC can just create an interim title because the promoter controls the titles. And they can strip him or just make an interim title fight. And folks might bellyache and groan. People like me be like, oh, this is unfair on social media. And then what does it amount to? It amounts to nothing. It amounts to nothing. They can do what they want. And they do what they want, and they will do what they want. I'm not saying, I'm not here predicting they will make an interim title, but if they feel like it and if this goes on long enough, then yeah, they will. They'll just do that. Uh, Maybe I'd seen that they'd made it official. I don't know what happened. But you get the idea. Like, you don't really have hardly any leverage with them at all. Francis has some by virtue of being the end of his contract, but that's about it. That's about it. Would love to see you interview James Krause. It's been on my list for a while. I believe he's one of the best up-and-coming coaches in MMA. Seems to have a great mind for the sport. Yep, he sure does. Also, he says, P.S., see you at the Beer House. Yes. By the way, come see us at the Beer House, which I think it's just called Beer House, not The Beer House. um, And it's spelled H-A-U-S. It's right outside T-Mobile, right after the weigh-ins at UFC 276. BC and I will be there doing a live show. Come see us. Come hang out. Come drink some brews. Come do all the fun stuff. Friday, 5 p.m., local time in Vegas. Um, We'll be at the Beer House, so come say hi. Yes, I've been meaning to interview James Cross for a long time. I haven't done it yet. I'm thinking about bringing back um, like a technique-driven interview series where it's explicitly just about that. You know what I mean? Um, And then I might do an interview with him there if he's interested at that point. It's been on my list for a while, for sure. All right, if Max beats Volk... Will we see Max versus Volk four? I don't see how we don't. Aside from it being the fourth fight, Volks will have a deserve Volk will have a deserved rematch, or you know, whatever they want to call it for a fourth fight. Quadrilogy, I think, is what they say. Do you think Volk will take that opportunity or go ahead and move up? Yeah, that's the interesting part. He may decide, fuck this. I may just want to go to 155. Um, but you know, going to one fifty five without the belt, you know, I'd be saying, well, look, the belt only counts at one forty five. But I mean as the reigning weight class holder. Um, what does that do for you the other part is he may win it and still drop it right and what would that do that's another weird part too right because does he really want to be some kind of a champ champ at 155 as we all know you can't really be a champ champ it's too difficult if you're injured or anything so um, I would say I would say the likelihood is we see a fourth fight between them yeah Look, I was curious if you follow any other MMA media hosts like yourself any specific MMA podcast you tend to check out weekly no not at all um, I listen to anything but MMA when I'm not inside covering it which is which ultimately has a bit of a downside because I end up missing a lot of cool things that I wouldn't ordinarily miss if I was just treating it like a fan but uh, and you know it's good to see what other people in the space are doing and uh, you know um, just have an awareness of where you fit in and the ecosystem and all that kind of stuff. But I just don't have any bandwidth for it um, when I'm not doing this. If they brought Wimp to Warrior to DC, would you do it and record the process? I thought about it. Probably not. I mean, I'm 42. I'm going to be 43 in August. Like, what the fuck am I doing? Um, but I do have some unres- un- unmet, um, unrequited <laughs> in certain ways, but certainly unmet, training goals there's there's a couple of training goals I did not reach um, I kind of want to go back for but I'm a little bit concerned about the time and injuries candidly dude they just blowing me up on this shit all right Luke, with Zabit's retirement due to lingering injuries, how different do you think the lightweight division or MMA as a whole would be had Habib retired due to his long injury layoff? So this is before he returned against, um, what's his face, who he just absolutely fucking demolished. Um, The guy guy who had the motorcycle accident. Uh, What's his name? Um, Daryl Horcher. He would, be a bi- he would be maybe the biggest what-if. Because there was a ton of hype. Now, the real hype didn't get going until after that fight, to be candid. But, yes, there was a ton. He'd be a monster what-if. Biggest what-if maybe in MMA history, truly. And if you guys may not remember this, he nearly retired due to a rib injury. There was a rib injury that he had that had just broken him down. And people were like, oh, you know, lots of people have rib injuries. Dude, you ever had a rib injury? I separated my ribs one time. It, it hurts to fucking breathe. Um... So yeah, they can be debilitating. Uh, Someone says, I'm a day one fan as a single dad. Yeah, there you go, of two. And also fostering my two nephews. There you go, bro. They're putting you to work. Uh, I just want to say thanks for the hard work. got me through many long work days. You're the man. Thank you. Sorry, I appreciate that. Uh, Look, how unlucky was Nick Diaz by getting that five-year suspension right before the Connor effect? He missed the big bucks how much does the commission owe him it ultimately was not five years they reduced it substantially more to the point he just wasn't in the headspace at the time to compete you know that really wasn't the full issue i live in kennesaw georgia like you did i did not live in kennesaw but i'll explain in a second and have similar disdain for the south we have similar personalities as well where would you recommend a younger version of yourself moving to asking seriously Getting the fuck out of the South. I mean, listen, there's a lot of charm in the South. I mean, people think I'm just beating it up, but like, there's no redeeming value to it. There's a lot of redeeming value to it. But it was not for me. I, I was a transplanted there because my mom remarried someone she should probably not have remarried and then moved to the South. We had no connection to that place whatsoever. Never really built a lasting one anyway. It's an it's a old boy society times a thousand. Country club this, and we don't like minorities that. And everyone's like, oh, you're overselling it. I'm not overselling it trust me when i tell you i am not I, I i just wasn't for me i couldn't stand evangelicals i couldn't stand evangelical politics i could i just I, I, it was i found it suffocating and awful and i wanted really nothing to do with it so i would get the fuck out personally where to go you know um, there are nice cities in the south if you want to stay there again i've said savannah georgia i think is really nice there there might be some places in florida although even with that the exploding costs are making that something less of a bargain than it used to be actually a lot less of a bargain than it used to be, particularly South Florida. South Florida is outrageously expensive. Um, California, um, California's got issues too, though. You know, I've heard good things about, I'm being dead serious. I've heard good things about like Montana. I've heard good things about Boise. I've heard good things about, um, St. Louis. I found didn't, didn't think St. Louis was all that great, uh, to be candid with you. Chicago, I love Chicago. Now, it's too cold. Uh, everyone's like, what about the gun violence? Well, there's gun violence in a lot of... I mean, you know, I'll take my chances in Chicago in, in, versus any city in the South. But um, it, the weather there is, is prohibitive. Uh, I don't know, man. You got to kind of figure it out. Go, go explore some of these places. You might like the Southwest. You might like Phoenix. You might like... You know, parts of New Mexico, you might like, who knows? I, I can't decide that for you, but you won't know until you try. Um, you might like parts of Louisiana, for crying out loud. Like, there are, there's charming pockets of life everywhere, from north to south, from east to west. But as a general rule, Georgia, I found, like, after my mom died, my mom died in 2003. I think I've been back once, and it was for a friend's parent's funeral. That's it. There's nothing pulling me back there. Nothing. I don't miss it. I don't think about it. I found it I found that I was liberated when I got the opportunity to go. Now, as for Kennesaw, I lived in Marietta, Georgia. I lived by the Big Chicken, if anyone knows where that is, who's listening to this. And if you live in Marietta, Georgia, you for sure know where the Big Chicken is. Um, I lived uh, in an apartment complex not far from there my last two years of high school. And uh, I worked at the Chick-fil-A in Kennesaw, and then my senior year in high school, I took half of my, almost two thirds of my classes at Kennesaw State University. So I did like high school classes like for part of the day and then I did college classes and I was still a high school student but uh, I was also a KSU student at the same time. And so that's how between I did, you know, I wasn't like the best student but I did pretty well on um, standardized tests and AP exams. Um, And so between the credits I earned from AP exams and then the credits I earned going to Kennesaw my senior year, I walked into my freshman year with nearly 30 credit hours. I had already completed a year of college by the time I walked in. So what I ended up doing for my entire, I never took a semester of college with more than 12 credit hours, which is four classes. Never did, never, never needed to. Um, and I still graduated with two majors and technically I have a minor as well, but um, you know, cause I had, I just had so much credit built up. If you get a chance to do that, I do recommend that. Uh, Do you think when Conor won that... Who the fuck is messaging me? My brother. Do you think when Conor won that second belt, it undermined, in the mind of casuals, the difficulty of staying in a division and defending? Do you think when Conor won the second belt, so when he beat Eddie at 205, it undermined the difficulty of staying in a division and defending? Yes. Yes. It's not that going from one belt to another is easy. Far from it. The task is just different you have to be good on one night to get a second belt of course you have to do all the good things to get the first one but you have to be good on one night to get the second one in order to be good at defending the belt you have to do it against all different kinds of guys and i keep going back to this everyone's like oh johnny eblin's got no chance against Musasi." listen i, I picked Musasi to win i don't know what's going to happen but i picked Musasi to win certainly the vanderford pick i had made was not correct And you look at Musashi's record, is going up, he's looking for his 50th MMA win. He's got nearly 60 pro fights. God knows how much he's got amateur-wise and whatever. But, dude, Johnny Eblin is undefeated and has a good, at least a a very, very good skill set in certain parts of the game. Like, the fact that he has the lack of experience and the relative lack of ability in terms of the well-roundedness does not mean he won't win. How many times has somebody who has been this established dominant figure that is revered by the fans lost to someone that they never saw coming? It happens all the time because to stand a post and win fight after fight after fight with all that tape on you, with all of that understanding of how you're approaching the fight game at this weight class or whatever, dude, it just makes the job of keeping it so much harder, so much harder. So you might not think Ebelin has a chance, and I understand that. And again, if it goes like the Vanderford fight, then I'll eat some crow like I did after that fight as well. But I really believe that even if you think Musasi is going to win, and I, I, the odds makers agree, look at the odds on that. It's not some super wide thing. They've got him, I think, uh, they've got Eblen like plus 200, which, you know, they're not saying it's he's going to win, but it's not some like minus minus four or 500 situation for Musasi. Like, it's competitive. Standing a post and inviting on contenders to take it from you is... Probably the most difficult thing to do at a high level in MMA. What are your thoughts on... uh, I never know how to pronounce his name. What are your thoughts on... Is it Sank? The guy from The Young Turks, TYT? I don't know, man. Like, obviously on most causes we probably share similar viewpoints, but he's always getting dunked on on Twitter. (laughs) He, like, stays getting dunked on. And, like, I know one of the guys who used to work for them, and I did. he's a good dude, and he covers some sports for them as well. So it's, like, uh, an Anna Kasparian, I think is her name. She seems all right for the most part. Again, I don't really watch The Young Turks, so I, I'm hardly an expert. But every time they come up in my feed, my Twitter feed, you know, people are just fucking, bah, dunking on him and shit. Like, when, and, he, and he always tags Rogan and all this stuff, and he's like, I'd beat the shit out of Rogan. It's like, bro, listen. I might agree with you on some of this stuff, I might not on others, but Rogan would beat you within an inch of your fucking life. Like, what are you talking about? You know, it's shit like that, where it's this weird, bizarre grandstanding that I don't quite get. But again, I'm going to go back one more time. I don't pay a lot of attention to the Young Turks one way or the other. I only know what comes across my feed unsolicited. Uh, Alright, Luke, which of the following would you buy or sell on having at least one more big win? Zombie? Sell. Ferguson, sell. Masvidal, sell. Gastelum, sell. Teixeira, buy. Miocic, buy. But the Miocic want See, okay, that sounds like I'm no-selling them, quite literally. But... Uh, the reason I say that is because I don't know how many fights they've got left. Like, for example, I think if Miocic... Sta- let's say let's say, let's say say Miocic fights John Jones in September or something, right? And then loses. Well, then the answer to your question would be, well, then you should have said sell when he asked you on June 23rd. But if Miocic stuck around and kept competing, I don't have even the slightest doubt he'd get a big win. Does that make sense? Like, it's one thing to be capable of getting another big win, and it's another one to be like, well, with the time they have remaining by virtue of their own choices, like do they want to stick around and fight, makes it a little bit harder to answer. Who's the most impressive polyglot you've ever met? I've personally never met anyone who can fluently speak more than four unrelated languages. My mom spoke five. Let's see. My mom spoke English, French, Arabic, German, and Italian, fluently. Uh, All five. I wouldn't call her a polyglot, but she did have a language aptitude. That was pretty remarkable. Um, I met this dude. I won't say his last name. I looked him up a few years ago. He's working at like Caltech fucking, you know, science and engineering department of jet propulsion or, you know, whatever the fuck. Something that only somebody who is incredibly gifted at mathematics could do. I met him at a, uh, so there's this thing in Georgia where it's called Governor's Honors Program, GHP. It's like a summer camp for nerds. And I went to it. My brother went to it. One of your teachers in high school nominates you for the subject, and then you go to, like, district trials. You go to school trials, then district trials, then state trials, and then, you know, you have to kind of prove your worth on whatever um, topic you get nominated in. I got nominated basically in the equivalent of government. They called it social studies, but it's the equivalent of government. And so I ended up going, and there was a kid that year that went for mathematics whose name was Jacob. And I had only taken my junior year, I'd only taken, I think, two AP classes, or two or three I can't remember anymore. I took most of them my senior year. That's why I'm saying that. Jacob had taken like fucking eight or something. I mean, this guy was, and he was younger than us too. He was like 15. And he got his scores. I remember his parents brought the mail to him and he got his scores while we were there. And we opened it up and we looked at it. And it was like, it was like AP Calculus BC, AP Chemistry, AP Physics. I mean, all that shit. And it was a five straight down if you don't know what that means, five is the highest score you can get, right? You get, you can get one is failing, two is failing, three is passing, four is good, five is the highest. That's it. And five is, like, the grade you want to curve, so, like, only the very best get into that very, very elite top set. And he had fives all the way down. I was like, whoa. <laughs> okay, this fucking guy, he spoke three languages, and, you know, he was a nerd. Like, he... He probably, you know, didn't lose his virginity until 27 or something. But, I mean, he was outrageously smart. I've never met someone else quite like that. You know, you see these guys, these kids, like, oh, this guy graduated the University of Arizona at age 13. All right, I don't know anybody like that. But I knew the next best thing to that was this kid named Jacob. Truly one of the first times I was like, whoa. When, I, when he opened it Because he didn't know What the scores was going to be Then we opened it And he was like It was just five Straight down I was like Holy fucking shit He got a, At the time 1600 was the highest You could get He got 1600 twice Twice He got it once in uh, His junior year And once his senior year We kind of stayed in touch A little bit um, Like Dumb smart You just couldn't believe You couldn't believe Someone could do something Like that He did it uh, Just got back in the gym a month ago and eating clean? How important is tracking meals with a scale and uh, and also a pre-workout meal? All of these things are important. You don't wanna be a slave to any kind of routine, but here's just a little bit of piece of advice I would give you as someone who's dropped 45 plus um, in the last year. Having a regular routine with the scale, some people like it every day, some people like it once a week, whatever is kind of important. Now, of course, there are gonna be situations where you don't wanna rely strictly on the scale. There might be times where the scale doesn't really change, um, or you could even go up a little bit, and you're like, but I ate clean all week. But if you're, you know, depending on how you slept, depending on how rigorous your training was, That may not be the best measurement. Sometimes how your clothes feel can be also an accurate assessment. There's lots of benchmarks you want to go to, but I do think the scale has to play some role in your progress if you're trying to be disciplined about it. Your pre-workout meal is only so important as it fits into your overall caloric total, and it can propel you for the workout, it doesn't need to be anything more than that. It doesn't have to be fancy. Bowl of oatmeal, some fruit, some cinnamon. You're probably going to be good to go. A little protein in there, you're going to be good to go. Uh, the only thing about a pre-workout meal is you want to limit the amount of fat in it. So a lot of people like, um, eat a lot of chicken and rice too. So you can do that. And then uh, tracking meals. Some people don't like doing that. They don't like going to their app and punching numbers in. And they feel like they get, they get a slave to it. I will tell you for me. And you really have to figure out who you are. For me. It has been massively beneficial to the point where I've understood food better. I've understood myself better. I've understood what portions look like better. I've understood satiety better. I've understood everything so much better from that. I say it again, the Carbon app from Lane Norton, and it's been, it changed my life. No exaggeration. I grant, not everyone wants that kind of system. Try it out for yourself, Carbon or any other one that works for you. Put the scale into a routine. I have a weigh-in every Friday. That's how I do it. I know, But I know people who weigh in every day, and that works for them. The key is to sticking to certain principles, best practices, and then individualizing a program that works for you, that you can sustain over the long run. That's what this is all about. It's not about I'm going to just cut a bunch of calories, lose a bunch of weight, and go back to normal. It's how do I live a life that I can scale out forever. That's the key. Holland calling out Nate at 170. I think that fight makes a lot of sense. I love that. I saw that earlier. He's got a bit of a developing name. You know it would be a fun-ass fight. You know those two would go after it. Uh, It's winnable for Nate, which is important. And obviously, you know the benefits for Kevin Holland if he wins. You get a win over Nate Diaz. That would be huge. You could do it at 170, so there wouldn't be any 155 weight class issues. Nothing like that. Um, And again, like, winnable in either direction. Exciting. Hard to imagine how that fight would be anything but exciting Crazy trash talks Crazy dramatics Crazy face-offs Crazy weigh-ins I'm all in favor of it Now whether Nate sees it as an interest to him Is really the only deciding factor here But for me Yeah, I love it If you had to teach someone striking Would you give them a TMA base E.G. karate or, Or a combat sport like kickboxing or both What would you start with? I would actually have them go to a boxing gym um, now, there's probably a kickboxing coach who might see this one day and be like, don't don't listen to him. Yeah, okay. I mean, I don't, you know, this is just my opinion for whatever it is worth. Um, I feel like you, a lot of what's missing in MMA striking is solved for by retrofitting boxing. And I kind of wonder if you actually started with a boxing base and then built out kickboxing and sort of, you know, wrestling, right, you know, punches into takedowns, that kind of a thing. If you built that out, what would that look like? Again, I don't think you can just take someone who boxes, "Hey, go fight MMA." And you're, that's not what I'm suggesting. But to start out about the discipline of where the hands go and movement and shoulder rolling and distance and feinting, like the boxing will prepare you very a good, good boxing instructor will prepare you very well for that. Best drink to beat the summer heat, water, motherfucker. Like like Dustin Poirier says, stay hydrated. If you hadn't become a sports analyst, what would you be? I don't know. I probably would have stayed in politics and uh, hated my life. Um, Yeah, I'd probably be doing communications for some... You know who had it? Who was uh, Stavros Halkias? When he roasted DC, he said everyone there was involved in um, banal evil. I'd probably be executing banal evil. I I don't, and that's that's just the truth. I probably would be. I hated my life and I didn't want to do it anymore, but that is true. That is what happened. I was doing it. Um, where in JC is the studio? I'm not telling y'all. Is judo and nogi grappling a good substitute for wrestling in an MMA context? Can Jones be dominant in heavyweight his last few? I I don't know how Jones is going to look at heavyweight. I think it's a big question mark. Is judo and nogi grappling a good substitute for wrestling in an MMA context? Sure. Sure, of course. Uh, if Aljo's contract is the same for a title or non-title fight, why would why not fight Cejudo and let Mirab win the belt? I don't think it's the same. What he was saying is he didn't have a sufficient bump up in pay. Um, not that his contract... Now, for example, Demetrius Johnson, I don't think, got pay-per-view points. So his contract was the same when he was with UFC. I believe that's correct. My understanding is Aljo gets pay-per-view points, so it would not be. Uh, What would you be excited... Okay, who would you be excited to see Saryukian against next if he gets to Gamrot? Let me pull up the rankings because that will tell you. Not that that should be the deciding factor by itself, but it's just going to be where the UFC's head is at, and so therefore it is worth paying attention to. I would put it at... If he wins, ooh, you could do Fazeev, you could do Dos Anjos, Tony, you could do Connor. they probably wouldn't do it, Dariush, that's probably as far as I would go, any of those names. Personally, I'd like to see him against Fazeev, because um, Fazeev's a handful, but let's see, like, he's got to get through this first, so, big one there. Uh, thoughts about the Supreme Court gun decision for New York? I don't know. Donk in the chat is asking. Yeah, I mean, basically, you know, I don't know if you guys saw that there's a bipartisan proposal in the Senate that will attempt to do some basic things, which I'm sure gun groups will sue to undermine or overturn. Um, Justice Thomas is a total embarrassment. And using the Dred Scott case to make the case for essentially, you guys know what happened in Philly? So Philly had a situation where you initially had to apply in person with getting your fingerprints to get a, a concealed carry permit, or I think to carry it on your person. And um, they then changed it in to just odd. Anyone could do it basically digitally. Not anyone, but uh, you could do it digitally. And there were, I mean, it was a massive increase in the amount of um, essentially the folks who had had it, um, or the folks who obtained a, a firearm that way. And there was a couple other proposals they did as well, where it just essentially flooded Philadelphia with weapons. Um, I know there is the sort of conservative belief that a, uh, an armed society is polite society, but there really is not much truth to that. An armed society is a disrupted one in large part. Um, again, I'm going to go back to it. I understand that there are intelligent use cases. I have seen them. I, I believe that. I get it. I understand it. And I support that. I really do. Um, but I am, you're, you're going to, the data is not, support. Oh, oh, I saw another one today from, where did I see that? Mm, hold on. Pull this up today. Let me find this one. This was some research that was done. Ah, Did I miss it? I might have missed it. There was research done by the Roosevelt Institute, and they found that over the course of ten years, relaxing concealed carry permits increased uh, gun violence uh, nearly twenty percent. You know it, as I've told you guys before, the science of gun policy examination done by the RAND Corporation shows that one, more research is needed. Two, a lot of the research we have is unclear. And so there is some research that is not exactly clear about what is the benefit of allowing more concealed carry versus less and you know, um, red flag versus less and how they define those and, and what the terms are for reaching red flag thresholds. But the basic gist is that, and the research on this case is not all that debatable, the idea that and John Lott has been a scholar that has tried to make the opposite point that more guns actually creates less crime, um, but the reality is that pretty clearly more guns create uh, over time anyway m- much more uh, crime, both in the home, uh, creates more gun violence, gun accidents, suicides. That's how my own mom took her life it was with a with a pistol. Which I granted again I've been met over this before. It's a very complicated idea about who has the right to take their life and by what mechanism. But nevertheless, it does. The math is pretty clear on that. It increases it. And you know, because you you could argue that like, well, how much how valuable was a law like that if someone with an AR fifteen can go and then march into a Buffalo grocery store and mow people down? But the, the whole point is that that law wouldn't to my that was a handgun concealed carry. I believe it had nothing to do with that law or with the AR fifteen. And more to the point, like the best practices about how to limit gun violence are in some ways not as well known as they should be. But what we do know is, and I've pointed this out before, stand your ground laws, which isn't a gun law in particular, but obviously is largely affecting people who own firearms uh, it increases homicides it doesn't decrease shit it doesn't do it doesn't do any of those things we are fucked is the point i would like you all to get across we are we are headed towards very very bad places uh, i personally believe that i don't in any way think this will keep anybody safer um, with you know occasional exceptions here or there where someone goes into someone's house and then gets met with a firearm great i support that but um, I don't think you need the laws that we have in order to accomplish something like that in large part. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Um, if they're using, if justice Thomas is using, I mean, this is like high school level reasoning about w- what some of the judges reasoning were in the Dred Scott case to make a case for saying that the ban in New York was onerous. We're, we're, we're so fucked. We're beyond fucked and it's not resolvable. We're just headed to our bad place. And I don't really know what the answer is, but we're headed, we're full steam ahead to disaster land. So pack a fucking helmet is what I would say. Uh, Anything else? Oh, one more. Sank and Ana get bagged on because they are vile in their coverage. Presentation is key, and man, those two have a holier-than-thou attitude. I have to take your word for it. Again, I don't watch Young Turks. I don't see Anna getting dunked on hardly at all. I think she even sat down with Rogan one time, right? If memory serves, something like that. But Sank, or however you pronounce his name, he gets (laughs) Boy, they go to work on him. Have you ever seen that uh, Adrian Broner clip? It's like, man, I'm getting cooked on Twitter. It's like, yo, you can just put that under any any of his tweets. Like, dude's getting cooked. All right, I appreciate everyone watching. Thank you so much. Y'all are a delight. I got my computer back. I know I had the mic issues, but I'm hoping this was a little bit better this time. Uh, this will be up on podcast. It is the first thing tomorrow morning. Go check out the, the watch-along for Max Volk 1 and 2. Uh, MK is tomorrow. And if you're going to be in Vegas for UFC 276 next Friday, that'll be July 1st, 5 p.m., Beer House, right outside T-Mobile Arena. Come hang out with me and BC. We'd love to have you. Okay? Until next time, stay frosty.